Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. When you think of your leadership skills, when you think of the things that you're able to do well, does innovation top that list? Does innovation even show up on that list? I hope it does. But if not, I want to encourage you to pay special attention to today's interview. Today, we're going to be talking about what it takes to be innovative and what it takes to create an innovative culture. In our last episode, we had a discussion about how psychological safety actually leads to innovation. It creates an environment where innovation can flourish. But our guest today is bringing the goods. Today, we are solely focused on innovation. And we're going to be hearing some of our guests' top tips and insights on how to encourage and build more innovative cultures. We're going to get to more about him in just a second. But first... Would you be able to lead more effectively if you understood how and why you and your team make decisions? I want to invite you to take the mind scan. Transformation begins with your thinking, and the mind scan gives you a visual representation of how you think. Based on the Nobel-nominated Hartman Value Profile, the MindScan Assessment is an inventory that measures your capacity to make value judgments concerning the world and yourself. Instead of simply understanding how you behave, it objectively measures why you behave the way you do. If you want to align your thinking strengths with your leadership goals in order to accelerate success, the MindScan is for you. If you're listening to this right now, I want to offer you the opportunity to take the MindScan for free. Just email community at lifeasleadership.com. You'll get a unique link and the opportunity to review your results. Now, let's turn our focus to today's interview. Our guest today is the innovator in residence at Marquette University, president of Cape Point Advisors, and the retired chairman and CEO of Cree Incorporated. At Cree, he helped lead the company from $6 million in revenue to over $1.6 billion as they started the LED lighting revolution that led to the obsolescence of traditional light bulbs. He's the co-inventor on 25 patents covering LED and lighting-related technology. He's the host of the Innovators on Tap podcast and has just released his new book, The Innovator Spirit, Discover the Mindset to Pursue the Impossible. Here is Chuck Swoboda. Chuck Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I like to start off every interview with a few questions that give us some insight into your life and experience as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives as well. So you ready for these? Sure, let's go for it. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Oh, there's so many. I, I Probably the one that comes to mind first is a quote from Peter Drucker. And it says that management is doing things right and leadership is doing the right things. And for me, it was really important in my development to recognize that they are two different things. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is genuine, passionate, and committed to doing what's right. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? Leaders should ask themselves if anybody is following them. Mm. Uh, I remember a story that uh, actually was told to me by a college basketball coach. And he said it was halftime of a game and he was really frustrated with his best player. And so 
they're in the locker room during halftime and he calls him out and he says, Hey, do you think you're doing a good job leading? And the player looks at him and doesn't really say anything. goes, look behind you. Nobody is following. You're not leading. That has stuck with me for so long that as a leader, you can tell whether someone else is leading or you are by simply looking behind them. What is a book that you would recommend to leaders? Maybe not a traditional leadership book, but uh, the one that influenced me the most is called The Innovator's Dilemma by Clay Christensen, which is really about why well-managed companies can't change when new technology happens. But if you really think about what the book is, it's about human behavior and you know why do people do the things they do? And if you're going to try to do something unexpected, how do you have to go about that? If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? I would try to get them to practice leading, which in in my mind means you have to convince others to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do on their own. And so maybe take an idea that people think can't be done and start by trying to convince people to do it. And whether or not you convince them, it, that's not really the point. And it's probably better if you don't convince them the first time, because you want to go through this process of trying things, learning, and then having to adapt that because in the end, it's it comes down to leadership is about showing someone why what you're asking them to do is in their best interest. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? Well, a great question because I had to certainly think about this, but I settled on why not. And it's because I think why is helpful and, in fact, very important to give others a reason to follow you, but the leader has to always first start with why not? Because you're trying to get them to do something that oftentimes they wouldn't do on their own. Well, Chuck, I'm glad you're here today. We're going to be talking about your new book, The Innovator Spirit. And before we started recording, you said something that I'd love to hear you expound upon for just a second. You said that this book is really a book about leadership. Now, since this is a leadership podcast, obviously that caught my attention. And I'd love for you to talk about how The Innovator Spirit is about leadership. So I didn't set out to write a book initially. I was actually helping uh, a group at Marquette think about a leadership program that they ran. And in the third year, what they teach is leading innovation. And so I went through their course and I went through all the materials and I came back to them and I said, you know, this is really nice stuff, but in my experience, almost none of it will actually work because the materials you're presenting are presented like this is something you can manage. And to me, innovation is fundamentally a leadership problem. And I thought that was going to be the end of my conversation. And they said, well, that's really interesting. Could you write us a book? And I said, of course not. I don't know anything about writing a book. <laughs> and they said, well, no, no, you could do this. And I said, I don't, wouldn't know where to start. And they said, you already have. We've been taking notes for the last couple hours. And you should start with those ideas. And so long story, I end up writing a book. And uh, you know, kind of the aha for me was that much of what's in the book was, it was about how we approached innovation. But if you think about what we were doing, it was really about, you know, how do you get people to do things that they otherwise wouldn't want to do? How do you, how do you get an industry to change when most people think it's good? And, and what I really took away was, you know, as a CEO for over 16 years, most of that time was spent developing my team as leaders and myself. And I had a chance to work with a, a well-regarded professor at UNC who started the Bell Leadership Institute. His name is Dr. Jerry Bell. And what I learned from him is, I was always trying to modify people's behaviors to be better leaders. And the aha he gave me was people's behaviors are a function of their beliefs. 
So if you really want to help them be better leaders, you have to understand what is the belief that's getting in their way today. And you have to start there. And honestly, that's a really hard thing to do. But that's what I then spent probably over a decade working on. So would you say this is really about setting the right beliefs into your organization and the people that work there so that you can create an innovative culture? It's a little bit about getting people to discover the right beliefs. So beliefs are actually, in my experience, you can't give it to someone. It's learned and it's learned through experiences. And so just think about it. most of us grow up in our lives. And if we're going to take innovation as the specific challenge, but you can apply this, to whatever leadership problem you're worried about. Most of us are taught, for example, that uh, in life, it's better to avoid risk instead of taking risk. We're taught that the goal is best practice when if you settle for best practice, you can't actually ever be the best, right? You can only be as good as someone else or something that's probably more topical right now is, is we learn that, uh, a crisis is a bad thing. And, and don't get me wrong, it causes lots of trouble, but it's also an incredible opportunity. Those beliefs that drive that kind of mindset, those come through experiences. And so if your life experiences have set you up to believe one thing and you want to work on these, you have to actually put yourself in situations that allow you to form new beliefs. And so it really gets into essentially situationally creating things for you to change what you otherwise would have believed from whatever experience it, it maybe it's as simple as this you know one of my favorite sayings is people like to say think outside the box and i like to say well actually no that's it's a boundary condition you should start with there is no box but where does that come from well i have a young grandson and the moment you give a young child crayons and a coloring book or a piece of paper for the first time they scribble all over the page and what do we tell them as adults no no you need to color inside the lines. And the question is, why do we do that? Why do the lines matter? But at the earliest age, we're creating that for people. And so to me, so much of this is about breaking out of some of those boundaries that have been built into you. And you just mentioned that experience plays a large role in that. If you want to create an innovative mindset, an innovative spirit, do you need to be very focused on finding other experiences quote unquote, outside the box to help you develop new ideas and stretch your brain in new ways? Or what, what does that look like? So, you know, I'll give you an example. So one of the things that uh, is really critical to taking on big challenges is this idea of what I call becoming unafraid of failure, right? So many of us are trying to be perfect all the time. And the reality is, is there is no such thing, but we've been conditioned to try to get there. And, and by the way, and I'm completely wired that way as well. So this is something I had to train myself. And what I learned is that if you put yourself in situations where you have essentially almost force yourself to fail or make it come really darn close, you will start to do things that don't work as planned. And when you survive and you realize, Hey, I'm okay. You start to realize that, man, I was afraid of something that really doesn't matter that much. And so it's, it's a matter of putting yourself in situations. So, you know, a really low tech example for me is that um, when my daughter was getting married a few years ago, she asked me to join her for a ballroom dancing lesson before her wedding. And I got to tell you, dancing is not my thing, <laughs> right? I'm a six, six guy with no rhythm. Like it's not my thing. So I can't say no. So I go and do this. And at the end of that evening, I realized, wow, what, what was I so afraid of in the first place? Yeah, maybe I kind of looked silly for a while, but the net result was I came out of that experience 
not worried about it and way more confident and certainly enjoy the father daughter dance more than I would have. And I think, you know, that could be a work thing, right? So people go to work and they ask to sign up for a goal. Most people sign up for a goal. They're sure they can deliver. What I would tell people to do is sign up for one. You're pretty sure you can't. And what you'll find is that when you miss it, the world doesn't come to an end. And in fact, oftentimes you'll discover things you wouldn't have otherwise discovered. It's a freeing thing. And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get in terms of creating situations to these, create these experiences that allow your beliefs to start to shift. Now, in the innovator spirit towards the beginning of the book, you talk about how when Cree, which is the company that you ended up becoming the CEO of, when they first offered you a job, you turned it down because it seemed too risky. And I'd I'd love for you to talk about the relationship between innovation and risk. Are those two connected? I think in a lot of people's minds they are. I'm just thinking you are someone who knows innovation and, and lives it out. What is the relationship between innovation and risk? They're completely correlated. The way to think about it is if you've ever had someone talk to you about uh, an investment, right? They say, uh, hey, you go to see, meet your financial advisor and they say, well, how much risk are you willing to take? And you say, I don't want a lot of risk. And they say, well, what would you like your returns to be? Well, I want high returns. They say, well, it doesn't work that way. It's a lie, <laughs> right? Risk and reward are correlated. Innovation is fundamentally correlated with risk as well. Um, and so you've got to be prepared to think about it. And, and the reason I put that story in the book is this. I talk a lot about what worked at Cree. I also try to talk a lot about what didn't, but I want people to realize I didn't start out as someone who was just naturally biased to take risk. I even turned down what would end up being the best opportunity of a lifetime. I turned it down the first time because I thought it was too risky. And it was only when my wife helped me think about reframing risk. And, and, And part of it gets down to, I was worried about what could go wrong. And she was, she asked me to think about, but what if you don't do it, right? And so she made me start to realize that oftentimes the bigger risk is actually doing nothing. And that, and you be, what happens if you don't take that chance? And so for me, innovation and risk are completely correlated. But by the way, this idea of risk, it doesn't just apply to innovation. You know, if you think about most leadership problems, you know, the reason it requires leadership is because people aren't doing it naturally, right? And so there is some element of risk. And so the leader has to be comfortable that, The thing they're asking people to do, it's not guaranteed because if it was, they wouldn't need your help to do it. So if you could continue just talking about your experiences as you really became more innovative and created this innovative culture, what were some of the things that that changed as far as your thinking goes? Because a lot of times people think of younger people as being more risk takers, but it sounds like as your career developed, you became better and better at innovation which I assume means that you're willing to take on a little bit more risk. Yeah. So I think I had enough experiences where initially I would say, I'm not sure we, so give you an example. When Cree was first, our first product design was a blue led in the dashboard of Volkswagen cars. And give you an idea, we get designed in for this product, but we don't actually know how to make it. And so we're having a debate, two of the founders and myself, I'm running the factory. And I'm like, guys, I don't think we can say yes to this. You know, it, if, if we screw this up, they're like going to think that uh, they're going to sue us. We could go out of business. And they're like, but if we don't do this, like we'll never, this is the whole point of the company. Like we'll never know if we could really be that company we wanted to be. And so they made me realize that, you know, I voted against it. They voted for it. We did it. And when it works, you start going, wow, 
how did I start there? So that those early experiences of having to take on incredible risk, not necessarily by choice, but being forced into it, started to help shape how I thought about it and formed it. And one of the things I discovered is that, by the way, I would say younger people are generally more open-minded to it, but it's not an age thing. They've had less experiences that have convinced them not to take risk. Um, sure. I don't know. Some people have played golf. There's an analogy in golf that as you get older, you get you become worse at putting because you remember all the putts you've missed. And I think that kind of applies when it comes to risk as well. And so what we had to do is find people that were still willing to put themselves in those situations and it could be relearned. But but I have to be honest, when early in my career, I didn't know if it could be learned. I was just doing it. It wasn't until I got to the end and looked backwards and realized, oh, this totally can be learned. In fact, I learned it. And we actually used to start to recruit people to see if we thought they were open-minded to learning it. And, and really, we're looking for biases to see how, how hard that was going to be. Because if you're going to, once you have a culture, then the key is to hire people that fit the culture. And I think we miss that so often, right? And so literally the last 10 years of my time at Cree was really about trying to find out if someone was wired enough for things like risk, that they would be successful in this environment we were living in. And if they weren't, to be really honest with them, that you might have a lot of other skills, but I don't think you'll enjoy this. So I want to get to some of the traits that you would either want to identify in leaders or recommend that leaders begin to develop. But first of all, I want to take the opportunity to go ahead and ask you about the relationship between risk and this time that we're dealing with COVID-19, kind of the idea of how you think people should be thinking about innovation and risk in this time of crisis and, and what you would expect to see as someone who's been around for a little while and, and seen a lot of innovation in your lifetime. Yeah. So when I wrote the book, um, I didn't know COVID-19 was going to happen, but uh, I actually end the book. The last chapter talks about how do you create the focus necessary to get people to innovate? And one of the sections is about don't waste a crisis. Um, and that's not to say I, I don't recognize that a crisis is really tough on a lot of people. And I, and I recognize that, but if you want to drive real change, the biggest barrier is that people are inherently wired to not want to change. And in fact, psychologists will tell you that the normal wiring is that change in most people's mind is a bad thing, right? We, we associate sameness with safety and change with danger. But when a crisis happens, you kind of throw all that out and all of a sudden people don't have a choice and they're open-minded. And so what I would tell people is that there is an incredible opportunity right now. I mean, people are being forced to change every day. They're inherently more open-minded, not only the people in an organization, but your customers are. And, and I'll give you a quick example. So higher education, I was on the board at Marquette for 12 years. For a decade, we talked about taking higher ed online. If you and I would have talked with the leaders there in February of this year and said, what would it take to take the, all the curriculum online? They would have said, probably not possible, but if we all worked on it 100% of our time, maybe three to five years, we could do it. Mm. In mid-March, they decided they couldn't reopen their university and they had to go online. They took 2,000 courses online in seven days. Wow. It should have been physically impossible, but it wasn't. And, and the story there, and I, the reason I mentioned that is that, so what changed? What was different? Well, you know, they were right. If they would have bet, if they would have put all their resources on that, they would have sacrificed a whole bunch of other things that they were good at. 
But since those weren't an option, throw those out. They were worried that, you know, they wouldn't be able to deliver the same experience as they do in the classroom. You're right, but that's not an option. So what experience could we deliver? And then they were worried the students wouldn't get, it wouldn't work exactly, right? There'd be problems and issues and there are, but they've all made it work. And so in these moments, the people that need to change are more open-minded and the customers are willing to accept things in different ways. So, you know, what I like to tell leaders right now is, is this is your moment. What is that idea that you couldn't get people to do in the past, there's almost no downside to trying it now. So embrace the moment and go for it because most of the things we normally do aren't working anyways. It seems like an innovation, you have to oftentimes move before you're ready. So would you say that it's difficult for innovation to be a perfectionist game? It is. Um, And so, you know, I have a favorite Vince Lombardi quote that says, uh, we're going to relentlessly chase perfection. And even though we will not achieve it along the way, we will get excellence. And I love that quote, even though I'm not a Green Bay Packers fan, because I do think it's when you're pursuing innovation, that's kind of the mindset. You're trying to do something that most people really think is not possible. And so you have to believe that you're going to achieve this thing that others say can't be done. The challenge you get is that once you believe that you have to recognize that, okay, but it's really not possible. So how do you get good at what I call really trying things and learning from them. And, you know, one of the things that I had to learn is so many of us take these ideas and we, we wait to perfect them when the best thing to do is to throw it out there and see what happens, you know, run an experiment. And what you discover is it's, it's much better to take what you know and learn from it than it is to try to wait because waiting gets you nowhere. And, and the fact is when you're doing something that no one's ever done, you can't know the answer. Like it's, it's not possible. So you're better off getting information because each time you try something, you gain insight that you couldn't have had otherwise. And so for me, it was really this learned behavior that innovation isn't a destination. It's a journey. And I know that it sounds kind of cliche-like, but the fact is, is that there is always a better way. And in fact, one of the challenges we had at Cree is to keep reminding ourselves. And you know, one of my pet sayings was, is Every day you have to go to work believing that no matter what you do today, it can always be done better tomorrow because, you know, most of us come up with a great idea and we fall in love with it. But the fact is, if you're going to pursue innovation, you have to know that it's not the best idea after you've come up with it. There's always a better one. And so how do you get out of your own way and keep going? And so there's, it was really a lot of work around, you know, trying to convince ourselves that why you should keep going. And I think at some point it became just fun, right? It, solving new problems was just interesting and exciting. We built an organizational culture that people were addicted to that. And that honestly, if there weren't new problems, people got bored. And I think you, you so it can become, it can almost become normal if you, if you work on it enough. For those leaders listening today who want to develop a more innovative mindset or innovative spirit, what are some of those things that you would encourage them to begin developing in their lives? You've talked earlier about the importance of new and broad experiences. What else would you add to that for people to begin thinking about to make sure that they have the mindset that they can encourage in other people so that they can help their team or organization to really adopt that innovative mindset as a community? I'll give you three things they could work on. And these are actually part of how I interviewed candidates trying to see if they should come to Cree or not. The first one was around this idea of uncertainty. And so I would ask almost every interview candidate, 
how many barbers there were in the city of New York. And I'd ask them to figure it out on the whiteboard while we sat there. And the goal was not to find out exactly. It was to see if someone could deal with a problem without all the information and take what they had and try to figure it out. People that really struggled with this, I knew that they weren't comfortable with uncertainty and ones that could come up with an answer. And it really didn't matter what it was, but were able to process through it. That was kind of a checkbox for me. Okay, they're okay in the moment of dealing with uncertainty. I think that's kind of the first one. The second one is failure. I never asked anyone about their successes. I only cared about their failures. And so we would have a good discussion about their biggest failures and what did they learn from it. People that, people that weren't self-aware of their failures and that couldn't describe what happened and how they learned, they weren't going to be very good at pursuing innovation because innovation is not a, a game of success. It's actually a game of learning from failure. By far, you know, people see successful companies like Cree, but the fact is, is that you know, the road was littered with all the things that didn't go wrong along the way. We just didn't talk about those as much. And then the last one is this idea of ownership. And the last thing I would ask people is, I would typically look at their resume and find a place they worked in. So I'll give you an example. I, I interviewed a, a senior executive from Kodak. She had led part of their marketing group and she had, had a great career. And, and I asked her, I said, so when you were at Kodak, you guys went bankrupt. She goes, yeah, it was a really tough time. I said, why did you let it happen? She looked at me and said, excuse me. I said, yeah, why'd you let it happen? She goes, I didn't let it happen. I go, yeah, you were, you did. You were part of the management team there. Goes, well, I wasn't the CEO. I said, yeah, I got it. But you were paid to make the company successful, not to make it fail. What, what did you do? And she's well, and, and at first she got very frustrated, but I pushed and eventually she realized, okay, let, let's take this apart. What could I have done? And, and what I wanted to see is, was she comfortable with owning things that weren't fully within her control? Because the fact is, you know, Innovation, you know, I like to call it the pursuit of the impossible. You're generally doing something that no one has ever done before. So by definition, you're going to have to be comfortable owning a result that may not be possible, right? And so it's a, it's a tricky balance. And so uncertainty, comfort with failure and the ability to learn from it, and this willingness to take ownership of things outside your control. If people had those three elements, then I thought they were wired in the right way. And if they didn't, you know, I would tell them, I think these are the things you should work on. And innovation is a great, look, it's an incredibly powerful tool. It allows the underdog to take on the big guy. That's what I did for my career, going from 30 people to 7,000. But it is not the solution to every problem. And I think you got to be really clear that you have this right cultural dynamic and people that are thinking the right way. If you're going to take it on, otherwise, it's probably the wrong approach. And it's fact why so many people say the word innovation and so few people actually do it. One other thing I want to turn to that is maybe related to innovation, maybe not. Uh, you shared this in preparation for the interview. When you became a CEO in your mid-30s, you didn't come with all the knowledge and experience that you needed. And you took over as the dot-com bubble was bursting. Then in your first quarter, 9-11 happened. And you said that you missed your quarterly targets or your company missed your quarterly targets three out of the first four quarters. Could you talk a little bit about leading in difficult situations that you don't necessarily have any control over? This may be connected to innovation, maybe not, but I think just your experience there could be valuable for the listeners. Yeah, I don't know that it's directly connected to innovation, although I would tell you that you know the mindsets apply to either way. If you take the innovation mindset and apply it to leadership, it works. Look, it, when you're 34 years old and they make you the CEO of a public company, 
it gives you a lot of confidence and you really don't recognize how little experience you have. And, you know, experience is an incredibly valuable tool. Unfortunately, it's hard to appreciate it until you have it. So, you know, I was thrown in, I thought, okay, I can do this. And, uh, you know, quickly we have a lot of financial challenges. Nine eleven. I still remember someone said, Hey, check out the news. And we, they, I heard something hit the, the, uh, world trades, the one of the towers in New York. And I said, what? So we ran across the street. We had a company gym and we had a TV in there and we watched it. And I remember watching as the second tower got hit and it's like, okay. Someone looked at me and goes, what do we do? And I'm like, wow, I don't have any idea, but I guess I better come up with something really fast because I'm it. And I literally, I'd been in the job three months. And so it was, I learned to survive. I think what I learned as a leader in those moments is that you don't have to be perfect or right. Uh, what you have to do is you have to have an idea and some confidence to go try it and, and a willingness to listen to others' input. So, you know, I knew I didn't know all the answers. I had an idea of what we needed to do. But I brought people, I, I quickly forced me to engage other smart people and get their advice. And the reality is, is leadership is not about having all the ideas. It's about figuring out how to get the best ideas out there and focusing on them. And so I think that's kind of how it started. And, and the other thing is, is that, you know, when you're a public company CEO and you miss three quarters, three out of four quarters, it's oftentimes you don't get a fifth one. Hmm. The board typically will fire you. And so surviving that moment, uh, it taught me great humbleness and it taught me a lot about communication. So, so much, I think we think leaders are supposed to sit back and have all the answers. I think it's really important when you don't have all the answers to tell people, say, here's what I know. And here's what I don't know. And here's where I think I want to go. But what do you think? And I think that's how I survived that relationship with my board. It was, we, we did it together. And I think transparency is an incredibly powerful tool because the fact is you won't have all the answers all the time. Well, Chuck, I appreciate you coming on the show today. Before we finish up the interview, are there any things that you would like to bring to the table that we haven't had a chance to discuss yet or maybe some final thoughts that you would like to reiterate? You know, I think the, the one thing I'd like to put out there is that so often, you know, people would ask me, you know, what's the really the first step of leadership? And it's to lead. It's the act of doing something. And so often what I found is that young leaders especially hesitate. It like they want to think about it. They want to try to get it right. And, and the reality is, is if you know that there isn't an exact right answer, there's the best answer for the moment. And if you're open-minded to learn from that and adapt as you go, then you can figure it out. And so what I would encourage people is, Go do it. Try it. See what happens and and be open-minded and learn from it. And and if you do, you never know. Just just about anything's possible if you're willing to work hard enough at it and you're open-minded to you know the good ideas that are all around you. Well, Chuck, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. If people have connected with what you've shared today about innovation, where can people go to learn more about your new book, The Innovator Spirit, and the work that you do and have done? So uh, the best place to find all the information in, in one place is my website, chuckswoboda.com. You can also uh, find out about my book. It's available for sale on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and just about anywhere they sell books. Um, you can follow me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at the Chuck Swoboda. I do a lot on LinkedIn. I also 
um, write a weekly article typically for Forbes in the leadership section. And uh, I have my own podcast called Innovators on Tap, where instead of my stories about innovation, I get a chance to think about the mindset that others have. And they're for your audience, what I'd really say is they're really leadership stories about how do people take on challenges that uh, you know someone's told them they can't be done and they figure it out another way. And it's been a really interesting for me. I've learned a ton listening to other people's stories. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's been great and uh, good luck with you. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Chuck and that you feel more prepared not only to encourage innovation on your team or in your culture, but also in your own life. Now, let's go ahead and go to today's three key takeaways. The first one is this. Put yourself in situations where failure or near failure is inevitable as a way to force you to grow. The fact is there are a lot of things that we can do well, and we tend to stay in our lanes when it comes to doing the things we know how to do well. But if we never challenge ourselves to do new things, to try new things that aren't comfortable or aren't natural to us, then we probably won't get to a place where growth is necessary. The second key takeaway is this. Once you have a culture, hire people to fit that culture. And this, particularly as the interview goes, related to innovation and risk, but I think it's a great leadership insight in general. You work hard to develop a certain culture. Make sure you're hiring people that are able to fit into that culture and flourish and help the culture to flourish. And the final key takeaway is this. Leadership is not about having all the ideas. It's about figuring out how to get the best ideas out there and then focusing on them. It should be a relief for you to know that you don't have to have all the answers, but what you should be doing is finding the right people, getting them on your team, and then making sure that you're able to get the best out of everyone so that the best result can occur. And to that point of realizing that you don't have to have all of the best ideas and all of the answers to people's problems, I encourage you to come back later in the week when we have our second episode, and we're going to talk about the importance of authenticity and how to be authentic in a way that's authentic. Terms like authenticity and vulnerability are thrown around a lot these days, but the truth is if you're not smart and if you're not wise in the way that you show your authenticity, that authenticity can actually begin to potentially work against you. So I encourage you to come back as we're talking about authenticity later in the week. And until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. 
Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, Business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If Business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now, or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon, and until then, keep living and leading well.